was thinking about what I might preach about this year, I came to uh, to a decision, a decision that I wanted and also felt that I needed to be more consistent in what I preach. And I felt I needed also to be a little bit more purposeful. Purposeful both in my preaching and in my own study for my preaching. In fact, personally I felt my study needed to be more focused in order for me to grow and to know God more intimately. However, as you know, I'm not theologically trained. I have no formal academic background in the scriptures to fall back on. I have no college training, so where to begin? Well, I started looking through some of my old sermons to see if I could find a link or a word that would give me somewhere to start, perhaps by expanding on a previous message. However, what I saw in a number of the messages I wrote was that I used my own testimony and life to link what I believe the Bible is revealing to me as I look at and study a passage from Scripture. Now, initially, that struck me as being a bit self-indulgent. Yet, as I'm not theologically trained, I only have my own reading and personal study of the Bible and the experiences of how God has worked in my life to draw on when I write. But then I recognise that I also have a rich history of listening to remarkable preachers explain and illuminate the Bible. Because, my friends, the Bible is a living, breathing book to me. I truly believe it is about the practical use of the Word of God in the believer's life. It isn't some stuffy old book that you can put on a shelf and leave alone. The Bible is more than a book of information and interpretation. I believe it's a book that generates life, that creates faith. It produces change in individuals. And my friends, I truly believe that it frightens the evil one. I believe reading the Bible can cause miracles to happen and it can heal our hurts. We see that it builds character and it can transform circumstances. I know that it imparts joy and it overcomes adversity. I believe that reading the Bible can defeat temptation. I believe its pages impart hope and also release power. Reading it cleanses our mind and I believe it guarantees our future forever and I do believe that we cannot live without it and that we must never take the Bible for granted. And my friends, I would suggest to you this morning that you need to get more of it into you through every means possible. Because the Bible is where we find the strength to carry on and keep going in our Christian walk, even when it gets tough. Now, the very first sermon I wrote was titled, Who Needs a Doctor? And in that passage from Matthew chapter 9, we see a detested tax collector leave his previous life behind and follow Jesus. In that message, I 
likened my own conversion, which had only taken place a short time before, to that of the disciple Matthew. Both Matthew, the hated tax collector, and Mike, the smelly tramp, needed the love that only Jesus can give. Matthew was a despised tax collector, and I was a a nobody living on the edge of society. Both were given a second chance at life, and life in all its fullness. Now, the common denominator in both cases was that love, the love that only Jesus can show. However, one sermon drew, that drew me back time and again was one titled, Oh Yeah, Prove It. And that was from James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, which talks about faith and deeds. So I started to read the letter of James again, and at the start of this year, this letter is what I believe God is wanting me to concentrate my thoughts and study on. Now, I truly believe that if we are to follow Jesus, we have some tough choices to make. Now, I do not claim to be perfect. You ask the wife. I do not claim that my sermons or my talks are without weaknesses or mistakes. I would say to you, read your Bible, my friends, and check for yourselves if what I say to you speaks authentically from his word. Now this letter written by James, who was most likely the brother of our Lord Jesus, has much to teach us, I believe. My friends, we live in a world where we are inundated by a flood of extravagant claims as we flip through the TV channels or the papers or the magazines we read. These messages are everywhere and they leap out at us. And these products assure us that they are new, they're improved, they're fantastic, and they are capable of changing our lives. For just a few pounds, we can have cleaner clothes, whiter teeth, more glamorous hair, and tastier food. But these are about things, my friends. They're about cars that are more powerful, or quieter, or more fuel efficient. They're about the the perfume that has the latest star actress promoting it. It's about the, the perfect diet that promises to reduce your stomach size in 20 days, although I think maybe that's one I should pay more attention to. But all these things tell us that they are guaranteed to bring us happiness. We'll have more friends and our lives will be better just because our desires are being met. However, real life often gets in the way of fantasy, doesn't it? Now as a country and as a world, I believe we are facing a time of unparalleled turmoil and unrest as we face a general election in the near future. And our world is also undergoing a political adjustment and transformation that perhaps hasn't been seen for a generation. We have war in Europe. We have the superpower 
conflicts by proxy. Iran, Saudi Arabia, Syria, all sponsoring militias to further their own ends in the Middle East. And of course, the ongoing war in Gaza, for which there seems to be no end in sight. Now, I believe politicians on all sides have a responsibility to act. And I don't know about you, but I follow politics quite closely. I'm interested in the way that politicians behave when they are in opposition and, when, and then when they get into government, because talk is cheap, isn't it? And too often we realise that the claims made by politicians in, operation, in opposition were not quite the truth. Because candidates will often exaggerate allegations or come up with alternative versions of the truth to make their opponents look bad. My friends, this is the way of the world, isn't it? So let me ask you a question. How honest are we as Christians? How often do we say to people we meet who have problems or are going through trials, Jesus is the answer? How often do we say you need to believe in God? Not in a, a finger-wagging or an accusatory way, but with love. Because as Christians, we, we make great claims about our faith, but my friends, we are often guilty of contradicting those claims with our actions and how we behave. We profess to trust God, and yet we hold on tightly to the world and its values. We claim to have all the right answers, but we undermine the gospel with our actions and how we live our lives. Now, James confronts the conflict we have as Christians with the world head on. Because he says it's not enough to talk the Christian faith. He says we must live it. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? My friends, the proof of the reality of our faith is in a changed life. I'm not perfect, but I do have a changed life. And James begins his letter by outlining some general characteristics of what the Christian life looks like. And then he urges Christians to act justly in the society in which they live. Next comes some practical advice with a scriptural conversation on the relationship between faith and action. And then he moves on to showing the importance of controlling the way we speak. In chapter 3, he distinguishes between two kinds of wisdom, earthly and heavenly. In chapter 4, he encourages his readers to turn away from evil desires and to turn towards God. But he also reprimands those who trust in their own plans and possessions. And in the final chapter, he pleads with his readers to be patient with one another, to be straightforward in their promises, and to pray for each other, and to help each other remain faithful to God.
My friends, when I look at this letter, I see it as a how-to book on Christian living. Because James wants his readers not only to hear the truth, but to act it out. And he contrasts empty faith, that is, claims without conduct, with faith that works. And having a commitment to love people and to serve them is is part of the evidence of having a true faith. My friends, let me say this to you because I've seen this in action. A living faith makes a difference. And we should always be seeking to make sure that our faith is more than just a statement. It should also lead to action. Our job, in effect, is to find ways of putting our faith to work. So let's begin this series by looking at the verses that Sally read to us this morning from chapter 1. In my Bible, the first heading is Genuine Religion. Verses 1 and 2 say, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, we've probably all been through hard times at least once, haven't we, in our lives? It could be a financial loss that caused the hardship. It might be a job loss that caused a financial loss. It might be a a relational loss, breaking up with someone we thought would be a lifelong friend or partner. And when these hard times come, and I have to say, be assured, they will come, what do we do? At times, we may be tempted to shake our fist at God and blame him. We say that we have faith in God, but what happens to that faith during those hard times? What happens to our joy? Now, it's difficult, isn't it? Even to think of joy in those trying moments. Yet, James wrote here that believers should consider trials joyous. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not the trials themselves that are joyous, but we can have joy even as we go through those hard times. And he called his readers, that's us, to face our various trials with great joy. In fact, I believe to consider it a great joy is a command. Now, I believe that as Christians, we are uniquely equipped to face adversity and challenges in our lives. Because 13 other times in this letter, as you will see as we go through the series, James referred to his readers as my brothers and sisters. Now, that may not sound very important, But I believe it is important to remember as we hear this unusual command to consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. Because when the world comes upon trials, the world sees no joy during those trying times because it can be a time of isolation and separation. At times, 
when we are going through a trial, we may want to withdraw from the world for a while. But let me say this to you. For those of us who follow Christ, we are never alone. Because we have fellowship. Fellowship with other believers that might even be going through trying times themselves. Because in Christ, we can have joy. I would say that joy is one of those supernatural responses because it's empowered by God. James wanted us to think about our trials in a Christian way. Not complaining or whining or grumbling, but with great joy. But that's not always easy, is it? In verse 2, James uses the phrase various trials. Now, various trials includes all of the challenges that all people face and the unique trials that we as believers experience because of the persecution for our faith. You see, I believe Christians can experience joy in everyday life challenges as well as in the more serious misfortunes because any and all of those trials can test our faith. Now that's true. But in the process, I believe those trials can strengthen our faith. Do you know someone who's going through a trial? Sometimes you can feel the strength of someone's faith as they hold their head high and still show that joy that Jesus gives them, even though they may be going through a serious trial. We read, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, don't look at the trial as a tragedy. Instead, look at the trial as an opportunity to strengthen your faith. And you may say to me, Mike, that's so easy to say. But I firmly and truly believe that trials can strengthen our faith and develop within us a deeper confidence in God and his power by reading the Bible. I believe, I truly believe by reading the Bible, we can develop the ability to endure those hardships. We can become more steadfast in our faith. Now, I read somewhere that scientists constructed a biosphere, which is a miniature version of our Earth, to learn more about how our planet's systems work but they made an unexpected discovery. In the process, they learned about the value of exposure to wind for trees. While the trees grew more quickly in the biosphere, they fell under their own weight before they could completely mature. Without the resistance of the wind, they didn't develop adequate strength. My friends, I would say in much the same way, that is how trials can strengthen our faith. 
just as the wind makes a tree stronger, giving it the strength to hold up its own weight. Trials can also strengthen us, giving us the ability to bear the weight of life. Now this isn't a test of our personal strength or wisdom. Instead, I believe it's a test of our faith in the strength and wisdom of God to see us through. In some ways, faith is like a muscle. And like any muscle, it must be exercised to gain strength. We read again. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. What this verse tells us is that our trials require the wisdom of God. My friends, during when we're going through hardship, we don't need worldly judgment, do we? I believe we need the wisdom of God, wisdom that he gives generously. And yes, I will agree with you that we also need perseverance to effectively face what's going on in our lives. Because many times when believers go through trials, it leads to some Christians thinking, that their suffering is punishment for wrongdoing. Have you ever felt like God was punishing you for doing something you shouldn't have done? And sometimes our friends who are not believers, bless their hearts, add to this impression by implying or outright accusing those going through trials that they deserve the suffering that they're experiencing. Now you might remember that is what happened to Job who had three friends who came to his side soon after they heard about the trial that Job was going through. Now we're told these friends came to sympathise with him and to comfort him. Some friends. But then they started talking to him and they gave long speeches where they blame Job for his problems. Because according to Job, for his friends, Job's suffering was his own fault. He deserved what he was getting, so they said. They were outspoken with their criticism of him. And honestly, sometimes our friends can be the same, can't they? But even if the accusations are more subtle or implied, it can be easy to get the message that we deserve our suffering. Well, you reap what you sow. Serves you right. And then on top of being tired because of whatever we're facing, these accusations can indeed start to wear us down, can't they? Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes what we're facing are, can be the results of poor decisions and our own immoral behaviour. Now, I blame no one for the mistakes that led to me being sent to prison. But it takes discerning wisdom, I believe, to know the difference. We need God's wisdom to help us sustain the joy in our hearts through whatever we're going through. And I believe the ultimate reason for both the poor and the wealthy believer to celebrate is not found in this life but in the life to come. 
the trials, the temptations, the hardships we face in this life, my friends, are temporary. They will not last forever. Just like wealth fades into eternity, so do our problems. But my friends, believe this. Faith endures. Faith is permanent. Because in this world, trials can strengthen our faith. And that faith remains with us as we live with Christ for eternity. My friends, I'm hoping that this message has encouraged you. That it has encouraged you to look at the trials of our lives as an opportunity to strengthen our faith. Because I believe in their own way, trials can be a blessing. So let's face those trials head on. And you may not thank God now, but when you look back upon the trial and see how it strengthened you, let's give God the glory. And remember this. Verse 12 in our reading today says, Blessed, blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So my friends, let's face the world. Let's face up to our trials. Let's confront those hardships head on because God has given us a promise. The promise that we will receive the crown of life. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I pray that whatever trials, temptations, hardships we're facing this morning, we recognize that you are with us. We know that you have gone before us and that you hold our hand. Father, be with each of us this morning. As in our hearts we pray, we pray for someone who we may know is facing a time of trial. We name them before you now in the quietness and in the stillness. We bring our own trials, our temptations, the hardships we face. the conflicts, both of our world and within our own lives. We lay them at the foot of your cross. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life that God 
has promised to those who love him. These prayers, quiet prayers, the prayers that we've said out loud, we lay them before you in the holy name of our Lord and Saviour Jesus.